house lights go off and the footlights come on. Even the chattiest stop chattering as they wait in the darkness for the curtain to rise. In the orchestra pit, the violin bows are poised. The conductor has raised his baton. In the silence of a midwinter dusk, there is, far off in the deeps of it, somewhere a sound so faint that for all you can tell, it may be the sound of silence itself. You hold your breath to listen. You walk up the steps to the front door. The empty windows at either side of it tell you nothing, or almost nothing. For a second, you catch a whiff of some fragrance that reminds you of a place you've never been in a time you have no words for. You are aware of the beating of your own heart. The extraordinary thing that is about to happen is matched only by the extraordinary moment just before it happens. Advent is the name of that moment. The Risk of Birth, an Advent Poem. This is no time for a child to be born with the earth betrayed by war and hate and a comet slashing the sky to warn that time runs out and the sun burns too late. That was no time for a child to be born in a land in the crushing grip of Rome. Honor and truth were trampled by scorn, yet here did the Savior make his home. When is the time for love to be born? The inn is full on the planet Earth, and by a comet the sky is torn. Yet love still takes the risk of birth. We uh, began last week talking about the season of Advent, that space of time, several weeks space of time that leads up to Christmas, a time when we set our hearts, um, the jaw of our spirit toward Bethlehem and we contemplate this beautiful mystery called the Incarnation. And especially in the season of Advent, the church has been called for the last 2,000 years uh, to reflect on the themes of hope um, and maybe more especially to to reflect on the theme of longing and even expectation. Advent is rooted in the Jewish longing for a Messiah that our forebears, our religious ancestors, um, carried for hundreds of years as a troubled and tossed nation. Uh, this little group of people on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean in the area called Palestine or the Levant uh, we talked last week about how they were always wrestled. Uh, they were a thoroughfare for three major continents. Uh, their roads were incredibly important to commerce and travel. And so these continents were always vying for these little nation states that seemed to pocket in this area. Uh, the best way that I've described Israel in that season, those five to 800 years before Jesus uh, was born, uh, they were like a rag doll being wrestled over in the mouths of a Rottweiler and a German Shepherd and a Doberman Pincher. And they were just always in this very vulnerable position. 
They believed they were the people of God. Um, they carried that at times to excessive and unnecessary ends. They believed that they were the people of God with the definite article the very much stressed. They believed they were the people of God to the exclusion of many other people, though some minor prophets certainly pushed against that. Um, the reality was that at times Israel forgot the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic blessing, the Abrahamic charge. And that was God told Abram that he would make of this group a special people. But God said, I will bless them that they might be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. If there was any sense of calling out, it was not calling out for the purpose of exclusion. It was calling out for the purpose of inclusion and blessing. But often we miss these kinds of things. And it's not, it's not very difficult at all for religious groups, especially or political groups, to become walled. Uh, caricatures of what they were supposed to be, walled country clubs of sorts, where we are the in and they are the out. It was never, it seemed, God's heart for the Abrahamic people. But this group of people believing themselves to be the people of God and always concerned with why, if they were the people of God, why they faced so many of the struggles and vicissitudes that they faced, why they faced the injustice and harm at the hand of other nations. There were times that they wrestled with that and, and they, they questioned deeply if they really were the people of God. They asked those same questions that many people ask today. If, if, if I'm God's child, then why do these things happen to me? And Israel at times wondered, are we really the people of God? Because our lives don't seem to indicate that. But, but they never would give up the idea that they were the people of God, so they finally concluded what theologians refer to as the Deuteronomic Covenant. They finally, concluded, they finally concluded that somewhere back in time, God had made a covenant with them and said, if you will keep Torah and if you will be faithful to me, then I will bless you and you will prosper. But if you don't keep Torah and you are not faithful to me, then, then there will be a semblance of curse on you. I will forfeit you. I will give you over to the nations around you, and they will punish you, and they will, um, they in their punishment, hopefully will correct you. And so you see this cycle, this Deuteronomic cycle, all through the Old Testament story where the people were resting with Yahweh, and then they would rebel. And then after they would rebel, there would be this retribution from heaven, and they would go into slavery. And after the retribution, it would be so severe that like a, a prodigal, they would call out in repentance. And after they would repent, God would restore them, and they would enter back into a season of rest. The one book of Judges that covers a period of a couple hundred years has 13 of those cycles of repentance, rest, rebellion, retribution, over and over again. It was easier for them to conclude that God was punishing them and they were bad than to conclude that they were not the people of God. They would rather believe God to be a correctional or a correcting God, even a penal God. They would rather have believed that and remained who they deeply believed they were, the people of God. And so at the center of that sense that they needed to be restored to, uh, to such prowess that all the nations of the earth would literally make obeisance to them, that their king would be the king of all the earth. They would be a, they would be a form of Rome, and even before Rome, they fancied themselves to be that group that would be 
um, providing peace for the world, and they would allow the nations of the earth to maintain their identity as long as their ultimate genuflect and allegiance was to Israel. And they believed that, but they always believed that that kingdom, um, their idea of the kingdom of God was not of a heavenly kingdom. It wasn't about the afterlife. It wasn't about you know, going away to heaven and being reunited with our loved ones. Their idea of the promise of God was centered here and now. It wasn't until they went away into captivity to the Assyrians in the 5th and 6th century and there cross-pollinated with the Zoroastrian people who were there that they came back um, with a more developed view of the afterlife. When our people went into captivity, it's very interesting, and this is an interesting point to make this time of year, when our people, the Jewish people, went into captivity in that 6th century setting to the Assyrians, which we would now you know, know as Mesopotamia or Iraq between the Tigris and Euphrates, when they went into captivity, they were not strictly monotheistic. Uh, they had no formulated idea of a devil. They had no strict sense of demonology and angelology. That was not a developed idea among them. They had no sense of a bifurcated judgment that you know splits and some people go to heaven and some people go to hell. The most developed ideas they had about the afterlife was that it was a very hazy place beyond the grave where the good and bad go and none are the better for it or the worse for it. It was just very hazy. And, and yet, when they came back after 100 to 200 years of captivity, they came back strictly monotheistic, a very refined or a developing idea of the devil, a sense of angels and demons, a belief in an afterlife that carried with it a judgment for the life that you lived here impacted the life that you would live there. Very new ideas. What's interesting is when we study the Zoroastrians at the same time, they were developing those same ideas. And so the Zoroastrians like to say they influenced us and we like to say they in, we influenced them because nobody wants to give up that special place of privilege where they have the truth. What we do know is these two religions impacted. You say, how can you prove that? Well, there's some, what I've said is rooted in, hist in history very well, but I want to tell you another way that you can recognize that. We were deeply impacted by the Zoroastrians, it's clear, but they were also impacted by us. Because when Jesus was born and the star settled above the place where he lay, there were priests that came from the east and guessed who they were. They were Zoroastrian priests. While our priests who had the Torah, the prophets, and the writings were only miles away and did not darken the door of that birth, they did not attend to that birth, we had the prophets. Our religion that was right had the prophets and we didn't show up when the Messiah came and from hundreds of miles away and a completely different religion following some sort of astrology slash astronomy priests from another religion brought gifts to Jesus isn't that aggravating and yet it's so true the beautiful seeds of an inclusive gospel a God who includes beyond the scope of our including are all through our story so we have this sense of longing as a people. Jesus comes. The early church quickly conscripting the story of the, our Jewish ancestors, very quickly they said, um, we should continue. 
We should continue, we should conscript, we should appropriate their longing for a Messiah to our longing for the return of our Messiah. How many of you grew up in a church um, where you were uh, expecting the rapture to happen any day? Hand show? Lots of you. Um, how many did not grow up expecting the rapture to take place? And you don't even know what I'm talking about when I say rapture. Raise your hand. Okay. The other third of you are unaffiliated, evidently. Um, but the church early on said that the Messiah who came the first time left. And in his leaving, there was a promise of a return. And there are many of you that come from Disciples of Christ, Christian Church, Church of Christ background. You indeed did not grow up with the idea of a rapture. You were a millennialist um, that did not believe that there would be this interruptive process called the rapture. But even all millennialists, and many Catholics are all millennialists, even they believed that there was going to be this cataclysmic interruption where the kingdom of God comes. So the Christian church has positioned ourselves greatly as a group of people between the first uh, appearance of Jesus and the second appearance of Jesus. And that second appearance of Jesus would center around a, a millennial reign where the lion would lie down with the lamb and there would be peace. And then that thousand years would be interrupted by one final assault of the devil and then all things would be made well. Hell would be opened, heaven would be opened, and people would be judged and go to their respective places, and so shall we ever be. But we live in this church age, in, in this space between, and we are to be, we were taught that we were to be longing for that second coming of Jesus. The first coming has already happened, and we are to long for the second coming. And I grew up that way. Andrea, my cousin, is down from Chicago. They are uh, a doctoral student at University of Illinois, Chicago, and one of the smart folk from our family. Uh, came down to visit myself and the kids for the last couple of days. I was telling her the other day that her dad, uh, my first cousin once removed, my mom's first cousin, her dad played the trumpet in our little Pentecostal church. And about once every year, our preacher would preach on the rapture of the church. And periodically, Van, he would have her dad, Mike Kraft, go to the back of the church and sneak in surreptitiously. And right when he was at the hottest moment on the rapture of the church, and we were all feeling hell opening up underneath us, because we never, our folk were unconditionally, eternally insecure. We were the only one. We didn't think we were going to heaven. We thought if anybody had a chance, it would be us. But we knew all of y'all, Baptists and Assembly of God, weren't going to make it. But we were scared to death, always, and always going to the altar. We got, you know, when people, Baptists say, I was saved August 13th, 1973. We said we were saved August 13th, August 20th, August 27th. It is ad infinitum. So we were always in this insecure place. And her dad, as a teenager, would be commissioned and right at the sermon's most hottest moment, Mike would say, and he would blare the trumpet. We'd drop to our knees and run to the altar in a fit of... The funniest thing happened one time, though. He stepped in, and as he went, at the pivotal moment, as he went to blare the trumpet, he hit a sour note. 
And it sounded something like this. He stepped up and said, Pruh! and um, the rapture was averted. But are we waiting on a second coming? Does scripture indicate that we're waiting on a second coming? Just a quick few scriptures to let me show you why I don't think that is the case. I do believe in the kingdom of God. I believe in the kingdom of heaven. I do believe the world is moving toward what Julian said or described as all manner of things shall be well. There's a sense that our evolution, our growth, our holiness, our progress, whatever you want to call it, scientific, religious, I don't care the term, I, I at least long for, if not hope and expect, a world where four-year-old children don't have to say their favorite thing about mom. Did you hear him, Chrissy? My favorite thing about mom is when she lived with us. A world where every tear is wiped away, I long for that. I don't know how it will come, I don't know. So I do long for, and I do have a sense that, that the world will be made right, and I don't know how. Um, but I don't think Scripture, and I don't think God is calling us to cast all of our hope and all of our longing on a day out yonder. I really think that Jesus was on to something in Luke 17 when he cryptically but I think beautifully said to the Pharisees. They asked him, they said, we want to know something, and, and it's the same thing that we want to know 2,000 years later. Doug, they said, we want to know when is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, those are interchangeable terms, when is the kingdom of God going to come? So the implication is it's not here, and we're waiting, we're longing. Jesus replied to them, essentially saying, I, I understand your question, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And then he pointed in two directions. He said, I just want you to know that it's not out there. It's not in linear fashion. It's not in chronological form out in the days ahead. It's not a future event. And he said, it's also not spatial. Um, every time I say it's not spatial, I think I was preaching in Jonesboro, Arkansas one time, and Sister Eubanks came up to me after service because I had said, God is not spatial. <laughs> so there in northeast Arkansas she said she just was aghast that I didn't think God was spatial uh, because she felt the Lord was very spatial but she was a precious lady but God, you, you understand what I'm saying God is not spatial God is not three-dimensional corporeal physical and Jesus said as much as God's the, the kingdom of God's not out there on the calendar he said it's not up there in the sky. And that flummoxed the Pharisees because both of those things they believed. Um, they even had developed, as Pharisees, they had developed further the idea of the afterlife and they had seemed together this earthly kingdom with even a kingdom that would last into the ether or the eternal. Their counterparts, uh, the Protestants, they were the Catholics and there were Protestants in those days, the two major parts of the church. The Sadducees did not 
believe in an afterlife. So this really affronted the Pharisees, and they thought, you know, it was Jesus taking the side of the Sadducees. And, and, and Jesus said, it's not there, and it's not there. And so they then were curious, and they said, well, where is it? And, and even you have a sense with Jesus that the where was even an inappropriate question because it's not where. It, it's not less than where and it's not less than when. It transcends where and when. And Jesus then said something that can be translated a couple of ways and I think either of them are fine and either of them point to the same thing. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven, and, and probably the preposition includes both, he said, the kingdom of heaven is amongst you. And the kingdom of heaven is in you. And they, this was scandalizing. This made no sense to them. The kingdom of heaven is permeating society. It's all, it's here. It, it's a dimension waiting to be tapped into. And not only is it externally weaving its way through society sociologically, he said psychically, psychologically, in your own soul, the kingdom of heaven is within you. And they didn't know what to do with this. John the Baptist, just weeks, maybe months before that, was preparing the way for the ministry of Jesus. He was telling people to bring the low spots up and the high places down, the crooked way straight, and smooth out the rough places. He was just saying, prepare your heart, change your mind. Jesus is coming. And as he was preparing, some of the people pressed him and they said, you know, we, we, we're all for that, but we like you and we don't want you to go away. And John said, well, I, I have to go away. I've got to decrease that he might increase. And they were like, no, we, we, we like both of you. Can we have both of you? And he said, you know, you don't understand. I'm not even worthy to reach down and untie his shoes. And I've done all of this to prepare the path and the podium for him to speak to you. And as he was doing that, the people were really lamenting the loss of John. But then as he was trying to summate what he believed Jesus would do in their life, John was called by Jesus later the greatest of the prophets. And in Matthew 3, Luke 3, they both tell the same story, those synoptic gospels. John the Baptist, when pressed, when they said, well, what is Jesus going to do for us? John the Baptist summarized the ministry of Jesus in one line. And he said, if I, you know, just like later John said, God is love, there was this fill-in-the-blank moment, and John was pressed, what's Jesus going to do? And John said, but he's going to do a lot, but if I wanted to summarize for you what Jesus is going to do, this is the way I would say it. I have baptized you with water. But he that comes after me is going to baptize you, inundate you, immerse you, fill you. I've baptized you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And he thought and he said that about does it. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, which they understood to be synonymous with God. God is holy and God is spirit. He's going to baptize you with God. <laughs> That's it. So Jesus came along uh, four chapters later in Luke, and it was the last day, the great day of the feast. It was a Jewish feast, and Jew Jesus came to his people, 
And one of, um, one of the customs of the Jewish people at this particular feast was the priest at the last day of the feast would go up to the temple, uh, to the top of the steps of Solomon's porch, these beautiful marble steps, and they would take a big pot of water, sometimes two, three, four pots of water, and they would proclaim to the people that justice was going to roll down, Amos 9, from the mountains, and God's spirit was going to flow like water through the land. And it was this promise that the kingdom was going to be like water, reaching to the lowest place, going into the crevices, and, and, and being a, a consuming flood in this earth. And, and as they would quote those passages from the Old Testament, they literally would topple those water jugs and the water would just flow like a river down the steps. And so the Bible says in John 7, 30, or yeah, it was John 7, on the last day of the great day of the feast, while the priests were doing that, the Bible said Jesus stood, I like this, he stood and cried out. I mean, there was pathos and emotion there. He stood and he cried out and he said, he that believeth on me, out of their belly, out of them, not into them, but whoever believes in me, out of them will flow rivers of living water. So for rivers of living water to flow out of them, the river has got to be inside of them. And Jesus said, whoever believes on me, as the scripture has said, or as has been prophesied, out of their belly shall flow rivers of living water. And then there's this parenthetical statement, this spake he of the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist had said, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit of God. And now Jesus is saying, Whoever believes in me, God literally is going to flow out of them. Rivers of living water, this spake he of the Spirit. Now listen to this. Which they that believed on him should receive. But they had not received for, the 39th verse says, for the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out. For Christ had not yet been glorified. So this promise of the Holy Spirit, this promise of the baptism of God, this promise of the flowing of God in the lives of people through and in, was put to this um, constraint of time. And, and technically there was this sense that something had to happen. Jesus had to be glorified. It's very similar, four chapters earlier uh, in a really stunning story a leading Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus one night, he was, a, he was privately uh, awed by and enamored with Jesus, but he knew to follow this new rabbi Jesus would probably cost him his position in the temple. Um, John 12 would later say, nevertheless, among the chief rulers of the Jews, many believed on him, but they wouldn't confess him because they were afraid they would get put out of the synagogue for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. And before you jump to condemn, I've been there. And preachers all across this country find themselves caught between their conscience on issues and their paycheck. And that's exactly where Nicodemus was. And so Lee, three times because of that conundrum, because his livelihood and his identity was wrapped up in being a Pharisee, and yet he was moved by Jesus. Three times the book of John calls him a disciple of the night. Isn't that interesting? 
for progressive, uh, one of the things that I want to do as a progressive evangelical, I've been talking to some of my minister friends about it, is I want to start a website called the Nicodemus Project. A safe place for evangelical pastors, traditional pastors everywhere who are thinking these thoughts and are scared to death. Control that site and hear from people like myself and Brian McLaren and Tony Campolo and they can go there safely. Because that's what Nicodemus did. The Bible says there was a man named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and the same came to Jesus by night. Under the cover of night, he came to Jesus. And as he came to Jesus and they stood there underneath that sycamore tree with the Judean moon shining down through its branches, face to face with this one he was so deeply moved by and yet incapable of doing this in the light of day, scared to death. The Bible says, he said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher sent from God, for nobody can do the miracles that thou doest except God be with them. We believe in you. And Jesus looked at him and said, just punched right back and said, truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom of heaven. He can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was like a, a punch drunk boxer literally he fell back on the ring ropes and covered up gathered his wits and and staggered intellectually and said uh, what do you mean how can a man be born when he is old can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born Jesus said truly truly Nicodemus I say to you except a man is born of water amniotic fluid except a man is born of flesh he could have said except a man is born of water and of spirit he can't see the kingdom of God again Nicodemus was staggered and said how can these things be and Jesus looked at him and said Nicodemus are you not a ruler of the Jews you had the prophets how can you not know these things For the scripture has said all of this. And even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the brazen serpent in the wilderness that healed all the people who had been bitten by the snakes, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and people were healed, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And if the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all to himself. This spake he of the cross, lifted up on the cross. So... Now Jesus is saying, you you must be born of the Spirit, but I've got to be lifted up on the cross. Four chapters later, he said, you will have God flowing out of you, but I've got to be glorified first. And then he comes to John 14, which is a remarkable text. And this is the night before his crucifixion. It's really the capstone of it all. And he looks at the disciples and he says, all of you are going to deny me tonight. You're all going to run. You're all going to be scared to death as it comes down and you're shaken like sheep scattered when the shepherd is smitten. You're all going to run. Simon Peter stepped forward and said, I won't. All of these might, but I won't. I will die for you and I'll go to prison with you. I'm there with you. And Jesus looked at him sadly and said, Simon, before the rooster crows the second time tonight, you will have denied me three times. Simon's heart broke and the next words out of Jesus mouth listen to how it flows Simon before the rooster crows twice tonight you will have denied me three times but let not your heart be troubled you believe in God believe also in me those scriptures go together we always start that last scripture at funerals you know let not your heart be troubled you believe in God believe also in me 
But the text says that Jesus said, you will deny me before the rooster crows twice. You will have denied me three times, but let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are plenty of rooms. That's the text. King James made it mansions, and we've all been singing about our mansion just over in the glory land for a long time. But the text really says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. Or it can be translated, in my father's house, there is plenty of room. In other words, in my father's house, there's room for people who deny, who fail, who get it wrong, who when the rooster crows are ashamed and embarrassed at what they've done. <clears throat> you minister to women all week in the, in the jail trying to remind them in our father's house, there's plenty of room, no matter how far you've missed it, what you've done. In my father's house, there's plenty of room. And then Jesus said, if it weren't so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. All our lives, we heard that text as a text referring to Jesus went away as a architect, an architect, a general contractor, and an, a, a carpenter. And Jesus has been up there for a couple of thousand years all my life. My dad and his six brothers were contractors, and I always said as a young preacher, it takes them three to six months to build a house. Man, if Jesus has been working for 2,000 years, can you imagine? Beverly Hillbillies hadn't seen anything on the mansion we're going to have, right? But that's not what the text is saying. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house, there's plenty of room. And I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And Philip looked at him and said, Lord, we don't know the way. And Jesus said, you do know the way. You just don't know that you know the way. I love that. Somebody looks at Jesus and said, I don't know. Jesus said, you do. You're selling yourself short. You know so much more than what you think you know. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That scripture that has been used to narrow down to an exclusive few and remnant, the people of God, it's amazing that that scripture is just on the other side of Jesus looking at a failed man saying, in my Father's house there's plenty of room. This way, this truth and the life is wide. Philip leaned in and said, Lord, we know you, and now we know the way, but would you show us the Father? Show us God? And Jesus said, Philip, have I been so long time with you? See, they were still looking up for God or out for God. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been so long time with you and you haven't known me? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I'm going to pray to the Father, and the Father's going to give you another. For I must first go away. For if I go not away, if I go not away, then the Spirit whom the Father will send, the Holy Spirit, if I am lifted up on the cross, if I'm glorified, if I go away, then the Father will send the Spirit to you. Now listen to this. Jesus said, I've told you I've got to go away, and you're sad. And yet going away 
Me going away is a favor to you because when I go away, greater works than I have done, you will do because the spirit that replaces my position here is going to infuse all of you and the body of Christ is no longer going to be relegated to one bronze-skinned Galilean down in Palestine, but the body of Christ is going to be a body that is proliferate, that is everywhere. For the same spirit, Paul said, that raised Jesus from the dead, it'll dwell in you. You're the body. Jesus said, it's going to be better when I go away. They pushed back against him and they lamented. We don't want the spirit and we don't want you to go away. They clung to Jesus. And when they pressed into him and said, we don't want you to go away and we don't want the spirit, Jesus softened and he said something that's uncannily. He looked at them and said, fellas, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. I will be the spirit of truth. Holy ghost. What is a ghost? A ghost is a spirit of a departed being. Jesus said, the father will send the comforter in my name. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Later in Acts 16, Paul was talking about an impression that he received from the Holy Spirit that forbade him go up into northern Turkey, which was called Bithynia. And in one verse, he said, the Holy Spirit would not allow me to go. In the very next verse, in an appositional statement, repeating what he had said, the Holy Spirit would not let me go into Bithynia. He said that morning, in the next verse, that morning when I woke up, the Spirit of Jesus would not let me go. Who is the Holy Spirit? The departed one. Come, resident within us. Jesus said, the Father will send the Spirit of truth in my name. I will come to you and then listen to this. John 14, that pericope, that section closes and Jesus began, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there's plenty of room. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And now Jesus concludes by saying, the Father's gonna send the spirit of truth in my name. I will come to you. And he concludes that section by saying, let not your heart be troubled. <laughs> he bookends. He starts with let not your heart be troubled and he ends with let not your heart be troubled which is an indication in his style that he is about to wrap up and bring you back to what he promised in the beginning. And now he concludes by saying let not your heart be troubled for my father and I will come and make our abode with you. We are not going to the mansion when Jesus said I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also he wasn't talking about the fourth heavens on the other side of the galaxies he was talking about the human heart let not your heart be troubling you for your heart is the very place where my father and I will make our abode. Do you know why there is plenty of room in my father's house? Because my father's house is the human heart. And wherever there is a heart, there is a room. And wherever there is a room, God is there. And whoever understands that beautiful truth out of their bellies shall flow rivers of living water and Jesus then dies, is crucified, 
takes his disciples out and as they hold on to him there at the mountain and they worship him, the Bible said as they were worshiping him, he began floating into the air and they did not want him to go away. But he floated into the air and landed smack dab in the middle of their hearts where actually he had always been. And as he floated away, the angels looked at them as they were gawking at the heavens and they said, why are you standing here gazing? He said, if you would go to Jerusalem, he would return. He would return in the same way you have seen him go away. They went to Jerusalem and Acts, the second chapter, said when the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and they absolutely knew that Jesus was about to come back. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And begin to speak with tongues as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. And in that moment, Christ returned in the fullness of Spirit. And interestingly, the Jesus that had ascended into heaven visibly, it was simply a metaphor of a metaphysical reality that wasn't really out there and up there. It was a word picture of something happening in their soul. Because the book of Acts was written by the writer of Luke... And the book of Acts was actually written first, and then the prequel was written as Luke. And in the book of Acts, when the Bible says there was a sound from heaven, as Christ descended in the power of the Spirit, the sound came from heaven. And in Luke 17, as he reflected in the prequel, he remembered the only gospel writer who remembered this. Jesus told the Pharisees, the kingdom of heaven, Ted, is in you. So if the kingdom of heaven is in you and the Holy Spirit falls from heaven, guess where it just fell from? It just fell from within you. This was not an external invasion. This was a dropping down into consciousness and awareness of what had always been the case that the home was the heart of God. Henry Nouwen the phenomenal priest who wrote 41 books about the love of God that have changed the lives of people everywhere. Life of the Beloved, Wounded Healer, Return of the Prodigal. Henry Nouwen was one of the most phenomenal of priests and most phenomenal of writers about the love of God. He was also a gay man that could never admit that to the world around him and there was no place for that in his life as a priest. He was tormented, he often battled uh, fits of despair and depression. One of his biographers said the tragic thing about Henry was he wrote 41 books about the love of God that he could never live and he lived a book with his life that he could never write. Thank God the church is correcting itself on these things. But Ted Henry said one day in his torment, he had fallen in love with a man and it was an unrequited love, and he knew he could not act on that as a, as a Catholic priest, either from a celibate perspective or a same-sex perspective. He went away, he went to the L'Arc community in Toronto and hid out there for a year and simply worked with mentally and physically 
handicapped adults. He took on the life of a young man named Adam who was terribly, um, terribly malformed and uh, his mind was that of a child and Henry took care of him and worked through the stuff in his own soul. But Henry one night was lying on the floor, suicidal ideation, just wanting to die. And he cried out to God and said, oh God, I want to come home. And he wanted to die. He could not live within the constraints of the church and his own soul and his own psyche. And he said, oh God, I want to come home. And he said, as he cried until he almost was dehydrated and he couldn't speak, he was hoarse, just, I want to go home. I want to go home. He said, all of a sudden, it was like the sky opened and, and, and there in the room. And I, I saw this picture of who I knew to be the father. And he was standing beside this humble cottage. And he said, then I saw that the cottage was flesh tones and it was pulsing. And he said, it then occurred to me, oh my God, this is my heart. And he said, the father reached out his hands to me and said, come home, Henry, come home. And Henry said, he lifted his voice and screamed from that floor, I cannot live there. I've been running from that heart my entire life. And Michael, he said, the father smiled and looked at him and said, Henry, I've lived in your heart since the day you were born. I'm God. If I can live here, you can too. Come home. The good news you never needed is that you can be reunited with God. The great news you never heard was that you were never separated. And we are not separated by time or space. In you, your heart is the dwelling place of God. And if you are to long for anything, long inwardly that what is in you might flow like rivers of living water into the next child who needs a present, the next person who needs a touch, and the next homeless person, Roy, that needs a meal. That is the true longing of Advent. No more pie in the sky, no more casting to the future. Here and now, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Can you say amen? Amen. amen. All right. Let's bow our heads and just still ourselves as DeMarco prepares to sing over us as we close this service. <laughs> the good news is better than we thought, sweet Christ. 2,000 years later, we look into a manger and the gospel just keeps getting fuller and fuller and fuller. Sweet Christ, do abide with us. Bless these folk as they go their way this week. May they sense the very home of God in their chests, filling them, flow through us. We give our gifts of offering to help this church that we might continue to take this message of infinite and eternal innate union that we might be able to tell people that not only can they get saved, but they've always been safe. If there is salvation, it is simply to recognize they were always safe from the very beginning. Drop down into our consciousness today, sweet Christ, Holy Spirit of God, fall from the heavens of our soul. Pray these things in Christ's name. And God's people said, 
God bless you. Our ushers are going to receive our offering and listen to this beautiful song.